At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. Fast Money does start right now. As always, live from the NASDAQ market side in New York's Times Square, I am Brian Sullivan in for Melissa Lee tonight. Your traders on the desk, Tim Seymour, Brian Kelly, Steve Grasso, and Guy Adami. It is what Steve Grasso is calling the most important chart in the market right now. How's that for a tease? Mm. Grasso's going to reveal what that is. Plus, the IPO frenzy beginning to heat up. Lyft set to make its trading debut on Friday. And former Home Depot CEO Bob Nardelli says... Now is the perfect time to go public. He'll be here to sell why. Plus, we start with the markets and stocks seemingly shrugging off global recession fears, at least for now. The Dow soaring more than 250 points at the highs of the session. We ended up around 140 points. The S&P and the Nasdaq both climbing just about 1%. It was energy that was the real standout today. It was the best performing sector today, and it added to a 15% gain this year. All this is crude oil soars, crossing back above 60 bucks a barrel. But Brian Kelly, let's start off with you. You say this is the single biggest risk to the market rally right now. Why yeah, and what are you watching? So listen, in, in markets, you never get hit by the bust that you can see. So we can see what's going on with the Fed. The markets reacted to that. So where else can we have this extra shock? To me, it's energy. It is looking so strong. Every time there's negative news, oil goes higher. That, to me, is a very bullish sign. Now, what happens is, as oil goes higher, as we all know, it's going to be a drag on the economy. It's going to slow down growth. And potentially, if it feeds into inflation, it can force the Fed's hand where they might actually have to be hawkish. After this entire dovish shift, all of a sudden, oil comes along and says, you know what, We need the Fed's going to have to be hawkish. So to me, if I'm looking for risks out there, I think there's money to be made in the oil market. But if I'm looking risk to the bigger, to the bigger picture, oil is your biggest, biggest worry out there. I don't know if oil is the biggest worry, but I understand what Brian is saying. I guess the conversation is, is oil going, and I hate bringing this up, but it's true. Is it going up for the wrong reasons, which I think it is, or the right reasons. What are reasons. they? Yeah. Well, the wrong reasons would be on the fact of extraordinarily dovish Fed. It is torching our currencies, as are other central banks around the world, which makes commodity prices go up, but not because of robust growth, because of all, in my opinion, the wrong reasons. The right reasons are economic growth, which we're clearly not seeing based on a lot of these numbers we're getting. So I think energy stocks can continue to go higher. Tim has been on this theme. Whether or not they're going up, those are going up for the right reasons or the wrong reasons, I think is immaterial. These stocks can go higher from here because energy is, again, I think it's under-owned and under-appreciated. And a couple names are breaking out, not least of which a capital oil and gas that we've talked about now for the last month, month and a half. Well, it's under-owned in part, Guy, because this is where investor dollars have largely gone to die over the last decade. Yep. Fair. And so, and so, Brian, to, to that point, look, I, I think the energy sector has been largely a rounding error. Unless you've made an investment, it's probably been something that's had you underperform. Um, but I, I think the energy sector has been outperforming mostly because it was the most shorted sector. Uh, and the reality is uh, 
People don't understand that a lot of the big EMP companies, and even some of the service players, some of the MLPs, whatever you want to look in the chain, are running these businesses differently. They're not running them for uh, the debt holders. They're running them for the equity holders because they have to, because equity's been destroyed, and because I think you've got CEOs now that are incented differently. But, but ultimately, uh, Brian brought up the point that higher oil prices could actually torpedo uh, whatever is left of this market. The way I look at it is I think energy prices on the upside and on the downside have not necessarily been a headwind or a tailwind to the consumer. We've talked about energy prices at their lows, wasn't that supposed to be a surplus and a bonus and a stimulus to the household? I think it uh, probably it really was, was though. I think it probably was, and it's probably at least a couple times that's probably been what softened the blow. But if you look at gasoline prices, they were $1.25. $1.25 a gallon on uh, this the Arbonne when I was content. Born. When was right, that? but that was in <laughs> December. That was in December on the Arbonne. It was Arbonne, a huge jump for wholesale gasoline. $1.95 right now. That's my point. But so only back to where it was in only back to where it was in the fall, though, BK. That's okay. Yeah, I, I think that's the important thing is that energy the, on a relative basis you can make some money in, but for the long haul you've lost money here. But I think the most important thing still to the market is the Fed. So whether or not it's the Fed playing around with the dollar, Fed playing around with rates, it's rates first, it's energy second. But I do believe that the run in energy is probably coming to the end. So I'll probably take the other side. There are. Listen, I hear your point, but let's also talk about fundamentals. Supply is down. Venezuela, they could be at 100,000 barrels a day in the next couple of months in the in the term they're going. Iran, the sanctions still in place. Supply. Where's America, though? Supply. We're at 12 and a half. Right. But, but, we're but in America, remember, is, though, is the, more than the Saudis correct, and Russia. We're, we're, importing, we're importing zero from Iran or Venezuela. But did you ever think, I, I hear you, and, I, and I'll give you those points, but did you ever think that America would get to the point where they're outproducing Russia and the Saudis? I did, only because we've been deep in the story for the last couple of years, and you right. see the trends and, going and that, up. That is tremendously bearish for the energy complex, not bar, notwithstanding Unless the demand, Venezuela, what if the demand matches it. Right, but the one-offs that you're talking about, geopolitical tensions, are transitory at best. Well, listen, all all I know is that every time there's a piece of negative news on oil, the price goes higher, the stocks are going higher. Just take a look at XOP. You can buy into this or not, but even just as a hedge for your portfolio, why not look at an ETF like XOP? It's oil and gas, and the uh, producers of it. It's going to effectively track oil. Not a bad place to be for some portion of your portfolio to hedge everything else. Guy, though, do you believe $60? No. is the pain point. No, and that's what I was going to mention. I think the, I was going to say the pain point is probably closer to 75 or $80 a barrel, which we're obviously quite far away from. But you've seen it before. Things happen very quickly in the commodities world. They're not stories until they are. And remember how quickly crude oil went down a few years ago. It's seemingly going up there now. And you, I think it will end with a crescendo to the upside, which will probably come in the ensuing months. Again, it's all to me based on central banks that each one of which wants to make their currency cheaper than the next guys and gals. The XOP that BK just referenced, though, Tim Seymour, mostly the smaller caps, the whitings of the world, these highly volatile stocks which have huge moves. Tim, would you be a buyer of either some of the mid-sized companies or the large cap companies, or none of them? I, I tell you what, the mid-cap E&P names, as I mentioned, I think they're being run significantly differently than they were three or four years ago. I also just think that there's, there's, there's discipline throughout the entire space. I think Saudi Arabia, I hate to get back to it entirely an oil discussion, but at, at one point we looked in 2015 and 2016 and we thought price was truth. Uh, we thought that the oil prices were indicative of what was going on with the broader economy. I think it's really bottom-up. I think it's very much fundamentals. I do think that the industry is being run differently. And, oh, and by the way, demand 
demand isn't going down, as you pointed out. So uh, I do think even EOG, APC, these are names that are, uh, to me, as blue chip as you're going to get on the production side. But look at Chevron, look at Royal Dutch, which I know we don't play for dividends on this show typically, but these are companies that I think Chevron probably has the best discipline in the big EMP name, integrated names like that one. Okay, good discussion there on oil and gas stocks. Now let's turn it to Steve Grasso because we know that he has been watching some very key levels right now in the S&P 500. So, Steve, why don't you head over to the plasma and break down those key levels? Without question, this market's been uh, extremely resilient, Brian. But why don't we just look at the levels that you need to watch for both bulls and bears? So if you look at it from, from through this prism, this was your, your uh, ultimate high, your historic high. Then we had the abyss that happened right here. This was down to the 2346 level in the S&P cash. Everyone knows the all-time high, which was 2940. Now we're in a different world right here. Obviously, the, the bulls have won pretty convincingly here. But the main level to watch is this level right here that we've all talked about, the 2815 level. So we've had one, two, three, four, five, and then we pop through on basically the sixth try here. So every time you're, you're rattling across here, you know the level that you need to hit. You know the level you, that you need to break through. It either supports that, that strength or it weakens it. In this case, it looked like it weakened it. But to clean this chart up a little bit here, let's, let's go back to, back to the other one. So to clean this chart up a little bit, when you look at the S&P, you want to focus in on this level right here. So this is the most recent low that we've had. Because you got to play for, if you're a bear, you got to play for pennies here, unfortunately, for bears. So 27.85, recent low. 28.60 recent high. So we're going to be banging around here, but to me, it looks like we're doing the same thing we did to the upside to the downside. The ultimate level here, 27, basically 39 is where you want to look. Now, obviously, you have a little noise with the 200-day moving average, but keep an eye on this, these levels right here. 28.15, that's your barometer, bull bear. 27.85 for a lot of push and momentum to the downside. Steve, I, my quick question would be, and I'm, I'm, I'm in your camp, and I've been in the camp, I've been incorrect, but does it surprise you that we've sort of been at this 28-15 level now seemingly for the last, you know, two and a half, three weeks? The fact that it's staying here, does that make you more inclined to be bullish and make, maybe make for that move to 29-40? Does the market give you this much time basically to sell the highs of the last couple of I, I agree 100% with you. You and I have been on the same page. We're looking for lower markets. And if we go to the next chart, I'll tell you why I feel like you and I might be coming into vogue right now, Guy. So this is the three-month, 10-year that everyone started focusing in on on Friday. And that's what broke the market's back when it went negative, when the, uh, when the spread between the three-month and the 10-year went negative for the first time since 07. That warrants us to pay attention to it. So if you look at this, this is the S&P along with the spread between the three-month and the 10-year. Is that a picture-perfect chart in lockstep? So take your cues. When this thing stays negative, the market stays negative. If it goes further negative or just goes sideways, we're in for much lower levels in the S&P. You and I have not seen that momentum on the side of the bulls, but not for long. Good discussion. Great chart, Steve. Head on back to the desk. Let's talk about it. Paul Hickey and Bespoke Investment mm. Group, Tim, pointed out this morning that it's not if the yield curve inverts that's a problem for equities. It's how long it stays inverted. Does that worry you? 
you know, I, I think people are talking about the yield curve and they've applied historical metrics to what it means for the market for how long and whatnot. And, and frankly, I, I have no idea. I think the things that from today's market that are the most important, you had a two-year auction, you actually had the lowest two-year yields in over a year. Uh, and the fact of the matter is it's very well bid there. Obviously, conversely, you've got a Fed that may be their next cut, uh, their next move is a cut. Um, so therefore, the short end should remain bid. I, I would also point out to the Case-Shiller home prices, up 3.6 year over year. That's the slowest year over year advance since 2012. Fed wealth effect. What are we talking about? People are starting to feel it. And if these guys are going to be right, they're going to be right because people are going to start on the household, start feeling less secure about where they are. And I think the market will follow. Uh, finally, you had consumer confidence numbers that are lowest in two and a half years. This is the data that I care a lot more about than, than looking at the charts. I'm not saying Steve's wrong. I'm just telling you that the S&P is going to move based upon a function of where we are in terms of uh, consumer household confidence, wealth effect, and, and ultimately really where the Fed is. So what's interesting, though, you mentioned the two-year today. When we saw that two-year auction, it was actually really good, meaning there was demand, yields went lower. What did the stock market do? It sold off. And that was one of the first times that I've seen the stock market start to change its stripes. The whole concept has been lower for longer, there is no alternative, you have to buy stocks. But all of a sudden, now you've got a stock market that's a little bit concerned about lower yields, that's a difference. So to Grasso's point, you have to watch these levels. I think 27.22, that's the low from the beginning of March. That's right now to me is where the strike on the Fed put is. If we get down to that level, I wouldn't be surprised to see some Fed talk that helps boost this market. You know, but Guy Adami, 2.42 on the 10-year bond yield, negative yields in Germany, negative yields in Japan, the Australian 10-year below 1.8% for the first time ever. The global bond market seems to be screaming fear. The S&P up 13% this year. Somebody, I think, mm-hmm. is going to have to be spectacularly wrong. Well, I mean, the 24% of sovereign bonds globally, I think, have negative yields. That's a staggering number if you really think about it. And these are not, you know, fly-by-night nations. These are developed countries. And, we're, you know, I'm not suggesting we're headed there, but Germany clearly is. And they're the fifth largest economy in the world. So it's telling a story. The stock market seems to think correctly or incorrectly, and then Tim and I can go back and forth on this, that the, somehow our Federal Reserve has their back. It's been true now for a decade, but at a certain point, they will run out of bullets as well. Do you think we're close to that point? I've thought that for quite some time. So well, I'm That's the why today was concerning, and that's why this sell-off on lower yields is concerning, well, where, because it, it where did are happen the bullets? in Japan. Where, where are the bullets, though? The Fed right now is down to 250 basis points of ammo, where historically they've needed more to pull the economy out of a recession. And we're not in one. But eventually we will be in one. People will concede. They, they, it will happen eventually. And we, don't, we, we lack the firepower to pull at least this economy out. And obviously the European markets lack that ability to pull them out. And they, we've seen that with the ECB. But, but can I just say something? I mean, here, here's the other side of all this. I, I'm not saying that um, the, the view is that a recession is a fait accompli, that we have to have it at some point. And if you think about where we were nine months ago, the, the global economy was chugging along reasonably well until we threw uh, trade concerns into it. I'm not saying that the global economy is in great shake here. But if you if you think about the other side of this, there's, there's certainly a global economy that was starting to recover and starting to pick up traction. Who's to say that if we get global policy, and I would get to fiscal policy rather than monetary policy, there's a lot of bullets in fiscal policy. And we're not about to go into a recession in this country. And I think the stock market reflects that. Let's step away, though, a bit from the Federal Reserve and the global economies. There's a great story on CNBC.com right now about how technology companies have been lowering their revenue guidance at the fastest pace Mm. in six years. 
Maybe it all comes back to earnings, and maybe earnings growth is slowing down faster than we think. It's definitely slowing down. No, go ahead. No, it's, it's definitely slowing down. So EPS has gone negative. Let's just wait to see where guidance is. We're only a couple of weeks away from the thick of earnings season. So I don't think it's too much to ask to see where that guides the overall market. The, bedroom, the, the foundation of the market should be revenue, revenue growth, earnings, and earnings growth. You know, you can argue that you might have earnings growth based on, you know, stock buybacks and some alchemy, but you don't have the rest. Alchemy. In, in, you like I, that? That's a great Dire Straits album, by the way. You know, it's a great. Thank that's you. one of your favorite bands, Brian. Dire Straits. They call me Sultan of Swing Sullivan. <laughs> Who's they? Nobody. Right. <laughs> All right. Check out KB Home Higher after its earnings report. We're going to let you know what is driving that move coming up next. Plus, the IPO party just getting started this week. Lyft is set to make its public debut. And former Home Depot CEO Bob Nardelli is here. And he says it will leave the market celebrating. And later, Chipotle shares sizzling on track for the best performance ever. What is in the secret sauce? The traders will weigh in live from New York City's Times Square. Much more fast money right after this. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. All right, we've got a market flash right now on two big healthcare names, WellCare, soaring 15% after hours. Let's get more on the why with Bertha Coombs. Hi, Brian. Uh, WellCare is a Medicaid provider, a health insurer, and it is soaring on a report from Bloomberg that Centene has spoken to WellCare about a possible takeover. WellCare with a market cap of about $11.5 billion, Centene with a market cap of about $22 billion. Both stocks were down about 4% during market trading hours on the reports that the Trump administration is now asking the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals to throw out the entire Affordable Care. Act. WellCare has just taken over or bought uh, Aetna's Medicare uh, Part D plans. Uh, so it does face an expansion uh, next year once it's able to take over those plans. Uh, Aetna getting rid of those plans, having been acquired by CVS. So we continue to see reported talks here within this sector and reported moves on consolidation. We have put out calls to both companies, have not heard anything. But again, according to a Bloomberg report citing people familiar with the situation, the two firms have been in talks. Back over to you. All right, Bertha, big move there for WellCare. Guys, anybody here got a view or a position on WellCare well, or Quickly Stantine? in WellCare, I mean, the stock's been under extreme pressure. A lot of the, you know, managed health care stocks have been getting bludgeoned on everything that Bertha just said. But you look at WCG, for example, 
probably have 19% earnings growth trades at 14 times numbers. Those numbers have been pretty steady. It's all the noise around these stocks that have knocked them down. So you pretty much have a double bottom at 225. You can trade against that. I think despite this move in the aftermarket, this is a stock you can own. Plus, you have, to, you have headwinds coming out of here. You have the Democrats with Medicare for All. You have Trump with ending Obamacare. And both sides agree on lowering drug prices and having health care affordability. So you might see a little more of this M&A activity trying to survive through it. But I think there are still headwinds that will exist from both parties in D.C. Okay, guys, good discussion there. Now, though, to our call of the day. Check out shares of NVIDIA. They are getting a boost. This after Piper Jaffray initiated the chip maker with an overweight rating. They cite two big markets, the automotive market and the data center market. Their price target, $200, about 13% upside. It has been a wild ride for NVIDIA investors. The stock up nearly 30% this year, but down 28% over the past 12 months. BK, what do we make of this? What do we do with NVIDIA right now? Second question first, you buy NVIDIA, because when you look at this, what it, NVIDIA's worked off a lot of the inventory that they talked about. They're in the middle of working off some, even some more of it. Not only did Piper mention the automotive sector, but also gaming for the second half of this year. So when you start to look at what are going to be the growth drivers of this company come second half of the year, you've got multiple different levels. You've got gaming, you've got the automotive, you've got data center. They are exposed to so many of the different places that are growing in this slow growth economy. You've already seen the sell-off in this thing. Risk-reward to me is great here. The only thing I'd say about that is part of the reason for this massive sell-off is that everybody knows that GPU gaming and data center were essentially one and two, and that GPU gaming was high-margin business. These guys were out in front. These guys had the chips that were in all the hot games. And there's a lot of competition now. The the multiple on the stock is, I think, still open for debate. I I don't dispute anything you're saying. I think probably overly pushed around, probably overly exuberant on the way up. But this buy, essentially... this buy signal right now to me is a function really of where Senate at a, was. At a two hundred dollar target, it's thirty eight times forward earnings. Yeah. Well, how do you want it? I mean, that so, that to me is Nvidia twenty eighteen. Nvidia is always got a question to... on growth, right? The, the valuation is justified for investors if you think they're going to grow twenty percent year on year, which they've been doing. Nvidia has always got the growth premium, but at a certain point, you have to say our valuations too stretch. S. C. Bernstein downgraded a, a handful, a couple of Texan, and I believe uh, ADI. ADI as well yesterday. Correct? Yesterday. And you talk about overvaluated, oversupplied. So you have to believe that they're working through, as BK started off, they're working through the supply chain. But if you're believing that we're in a gaming world, and it does feel like we're in a gaming world, NVIDIA will still get the premium Is 38%, price. 38 times forward earnings, Steve, too rich of a valuation? It's always too rich, but NVIDIA's always been given a pass. So it all depends on whether or not we're going into their sweet spot, the connected car, the connected home, gaming, where Apple and everybody else is having their own streaming, or a game environment. The analysts here they, talked a lot, Guy Adami, about the automotive market. That was a mm. key part of this upgrade. Which was the story when this was a $95 stock on this show a couple years ago, and we talked about if they can get automotive right, it, the stock will double, and that's pretty much what happened. But to Steve's point, everything that the Piper analyst said today, the Bernstein analyst basically said the other thing yesterday, and they stayed negative, I think, on Intel and NVIDIA. So, yeah, listen, you can have different points of view. I get it. I would favor, though, the Bernstein call as opposed to the Piper call. We d- quickly, before we go dig into that, when you have two analysts who make wildly opposing calls on the same stock, I mean, totally different, how do you play that, Tim? 
Well, I, I think you have to have a view of your own, and you have to, your people are going to reconcile that against some of the macro drivers and the catalyst for the companies. It comes down to valuation, but usually people are making a, a, a they're slamming the table and saying buy because they see some inflection point in margins or in a growth cycle or a product that's finally taken hold. I don't think you have either here, so I'm, I'm hands off. Okay, thank you. All right, coming up, KB Home higher after its earnings report and adding to a nearly 30% gain this year. We're going to bring you the very latest on that quarter. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. I like unicorns. So does former Home Depot CEO Bob Nordelli. And as names like Lyft and Pinterest prepare for their IPOs, he says they could unleash magic in the market. Plus... McDonald's is taking ordering to the extreme. Big Mac McDLT, a quarter pounder with some cheese filet and fish, a hamburger, a cheeseburger, a Happy Meal, McNuggets, tasty golden french fries. Well, right maybe not that extreme, but the company did just make a huge move that could put it ahead of the competition. We'll explain. Much more Fast Money still ahead. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. All right, welcome back to Fast Money on a busy Tuesday. The IPO market is already on fire, and now Lyft is getting ready for, well, Lyft off. Our Bob Pisani is down at the New York Stock Exchange with the latest on this year's, no doubt, hottest IPO. Bob. Hello, Brian. Good to see you. You know, no, no matter what you think of Lyft's potential valuation, and it's really rich right now, you couldn't pick a better time to go public. The most important determinant of IPO prices is the stock market itself. And the S&P is up 12% this year. It's the best quarter since the third quarter of 2009. Second, there's pent-up demand. The IPO market has essentially been shut for four months. Third, well-known brands like Lyft and Levi Strauss, well, they're the first ones out of the gate. That's a big help. Finally, the aftermarket IPO business is hot, hot, hot. The Renaissance Capital IPO ETF, this is a basket of the most recent 60 or so IPOs. It's up 31% this year. It's the best quarter ever for this. That's because we had a huge 50% plunge in old IPOs names like Roku and Snap and Carvana, DocuSign at the end of last year, and they've all bounced back. So what's subject to debate is the valuation right now. Let's talk about Lyft. Reports today indicate Lyft intends to price shares above the targeted range of $62 to $68. Okay, let's say they try to price it at $70. That would value the company at above $20 billion. Wait a minute. The last round of funding valued the company at $15 billion. They want a better than 30% premium just to go public? Wow, this is just the beginning. If they get that valuation, what about Uber? The last round of funding valued the company at $78 billion. Okay, let's throw in a 30% premium on that one. Hey, we're worth over $100 billion. Magic. 
This is how IPO markets blow up extreme greed and the buyers start pushing back. The first ones out of the gate get the premium. Good for them. Let's see how this looks three months from now when 50 or 60 companies of, say, lesser quality go public. I want to see this. But if this keeps up, we'll certainly pass that magic $96 billion mark. That was the record amount raised in 2000 for IPOs. It's never been surpassed. But with more than 200 IPOs set to go public this year, Brian, we've got a shot at breaking the old record. Back to you. That is a heck of a year for the IPO market as well. Great stats, Bob Pisani. Thank you very much. Well, your next okay. guest says that right now is the prime time to go public. Let's bring in Bob Nardelli, former CEO of Home Depot, also the former CEO of Chrysler and former GE Power Systems and Transport CEO. Bob, welcome. Why is this such a good time to go public? Well, I think Bob hit it. He hit a lot of the key points. I think, uh, you know, we saw a bounce back after the December tail off and people are looking for new places to put their money where they think they can get a, a, an exponential growth. I mean, there's maybe a little bit more growth, as you guys were saying, in the current equity market. I think the window is open, and there's going to be a lot of people trying to jump through this. Uh, I think Levi did it right. They weren't greedy. They opened up. They got a nice lift. I think Bob makes a good point where you don't want to overprice this and see a pullback. So I, I, I would take his advice. Let's not be greedy on the first day. Let's get out there. Let's get some growth, and then you're going to get a lot of people piling on, I think. But it's a, it's a wonderful time. People are looking for new, exciting opportunities to put their money to work. So, Bob, you've been CEO to a, a handful of companies, a number of companies, and, and I've never met a CEO that's negative, and you fit that mold. You're a positive guy. You look through uh, glasses overflowing. But when you look at the IPO market, is there any part of you that feels as if people are rushing to cash out of the market? Is there any toppiness to the overall macro that enters into the equation for you? Yeah, I, I think people are concerned. You guys were mentioning a little bit earlier. I think, you know, the Fed probably took one too many turns in December. I think, you know, Yellen was a lot more cautious about having to go up and then pull back. Uh, we, may, we may see that. I think you were talking a little bit about it. So I, I think, Steve, that's a legitimate point. People are concerned and they've, they've got a nice run recovery from December. They're not going to be greedy. They're probably pulling out a little bit. They may look at Lyft. They may look at Uber. May look at Levi's. Hey, maybe there's more run, more runway here. We'll put our money to work and see what happens. So, Bob, I'm curious. So, let's take it from the other side, then, right? If I get an allocation in these IPOs, is it a one-year trade for me? Is it a five years, or do I just get out of them as soon as I get the shares? Well, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't get out of them. I mean, I, I think I'd see what kind of runway you got, how much run you can get out of it. I, I you know, you, you guys do this for a living. You're in and out. You're not talking days. I'm, I'm looking at my watch. <laughs> I mean, you guys are in and out. You know what you're doing. But, Bob, does it worry you that some of these companies just aren't making money? I mean, the bottom line is these are companies that really, um, I, I, there's so much aura attached to Lyft and Uber, et cetera, but these companies, uh, their balance sheets are awful. They're burning cash. Yep. Um, and money is free. And as we like to say about a lot of other companies, I certainly do, this doesn't happen without the Fed. Uh, in, in, a, in a world where capital actually has a price, yep. a lot of these companies don't come to market. Well, Steve, Steve identified me appropriately. I'm a, uh, I like to think of myself as a solid businessman, and I do look at that balance sheet. So, I know you do. Uh, so I probably am not a typical investor in these initial IPOs. Uh, cash is still king. I've gone through that situation where you're burning a billion dollars a month. You kind of get pretty sensitive to the balance sheet and the need for cash for reinvestment. You look at uh, 
Uber that's talking about making this other acquisition right. and then go right through the window. Yeah. That's going to be a challenge. They made a three point one billion dollar deal to buy Kareem, the biggest Middle East tech deal done ever. Correct. But I think Tim's point, you know, given where we sit, the Nasdaq market site, nineteen ninety nine, people are using all kinds of metrics to buy stocks. It's, don't worry about making money. We have eyeballs. Yeah. Do you worry these companies may never make money? Yeah. Well, you know, again, you see a lot of a lot of companies disinvesting to reinvest. You mentioned earlier about buying stock back. Again, I, I think. You know, a long-term strategic plan would be the reallocation to you either innovate or you evaporate in today's marketplace. And we see a lot of that, particularly in the retail businesses today. What's new and exciting inside the box? And so I, I would be really careful about capital allocation. There's some companies out there that I'm familiar with that probably didn't do a very good job of capital allocation. And, uh, you know, they're kind of in the ditch right now. Mm -hmm. Bob, thank you very much. Great thank analysis. Why great. don't we do this then? Why don't we go around the horn like and say, around the horn. 60, let's say price is high end, 68 bucks. Would you be a buyer no. or a Lyft guy? No. And, you know, and I was a Lyft driver for a day. You won't remember that. That was a great segment. Wear that hat. And the next Uber I'll be in will be my first. But I think Tim hit the nail on the head. There is no path to profitability. And if you don't think this resembles in some way some of the companies in 1999, you're just not paying attention. So I, you know, people will get excited about Uber and Lyft because they've been in Ubers and Lyfts, not because they understand how they're going to make money in the foreseeable future. Well, I, I, I say this about, about Lyft. Uh, first of all, they are first out of the gates. This is a tactical call. This would be a trader's call. This is not a big deal. Uh, on a relative size in terms of the overall amount of stock that's coming to market relative to the market cap, you're going to see free float here, um, which is going to be 10 to 15 percent. That means that the stock's going to have a bid. Uh, the reality is that there are people that are looking for some of these names. If you look at the, uh, the kind of the retail sector that's outperforming, there's, a, there's an iBuy ETF out there that does a good job tracking that. Those are the names that are up. They're new companies. They're the new economy. And people want to own this. And frankly, they're looking at different metrics. They're looking at price to sales rather than P.E. So the real question is, is three months down the road, right? These ones probably will get a bid. They're the, they're the premier unicorns out there. But when the junkier ones start coming out, does that then kind of tip it over? So on this, if I got an allocation to these, I'd probably be a buyer, but I'd probably flip it if I'm up 10 or 20 percent. So you wouldn't be an investor. You'd I wouldn't be, be a an trader. investor. I'd be, be a, a trader. buyer. Yes. Steve? Yeah, I, I think that's the way it's going to work. It's going to be supply and demand. So when, people are starving for these type of deals. So to Brian's point, if Lyft and Uber catch that bid, even the ones that people don't want, they're going to reach for those too. It depends on whatever the last IPO's performance was out of the gates. If it prices at a premium and holds price for the week out, people are going to still well, you heard be hungry Bob's for piece, IPOs. Though, the Renaissance Capital IPO, about 60 stocks in a basket, best quarter ever. Right, right. There's an there's a undersupply of these names. People are hungry for IPOs. Okay, coming up, regional banks rebounding today after getting wrecked over the last month, but one of the traders sees another big sell-off ahead. We got those details. Plus, Crank up the Motley crew. Sweet. Come on. Because the housing the devil, stocks Brian. are coming off a long and winding road, posting a strong rally this year. So will the space set your portfolio free? Will it be, I dare say, Dr. Feelgood? We are back after this. Home sweet home, baby. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. A huge mover today, Bed Bath & Beyond. It really topped your tape today. That stock soaring nearly 22%. Because a trio of activist investors reportedly launching a fight to replace Bed Bath & Beyond's entire board of directors. Not one or two directors, the entire board. Legion Partners, McKellum, and Ancora, all saying Bed Bath & Beyond has, quote, lost touch 
with modern retail. The move prompting Raymond James to upgrade BBBY to a strong buy, saying it could be a takeout target. Guy. Yeah, and it has a huge short, I think it has a 35% short interest. Now, I'll say this and people will say, well, that's been a story for a while. Valuation is extraordinarily reasonable. But this stock has been in a five-year bear market. So what's the point? The point is, if they can get something right and they can force the shorts to cover, which might happen, there's still big might ruin on, on the upside in this stock. I don't think the business model is great, but you could have a short squeeze that takes it up another 10 or 15%. And, and that's kind of the point on the activist side here. I'm not sure what these guys expect. I mean, you know, frankly, if we're going to continue to use the Motley Crue reference, she's got the looks to kill here. I mean, this is a company that's not expensive. They're in the wrong space. Why do I need to to go into that store to do anything, uh, to buy my scented candles, my potpourri, mm-hmm. you know, a bath mat, Brian. I mean, you tell me. Well, it's more potpourri that I go in there for. But I get the 20% coupon, so I'm buying a lot of potpourri, but I'm not buying the stock. I, I mean, maybe you get some kind of a short squeeze. That's fantastic. That's the problem. It's just not for BK. It's, it's just a discounting model. So it's all coupon related. And to Tim's point, what are they hoping for, right? So, so maybe sales have troughed, but margins still getting compressed. I don't think they know what they want to be, and I don't think the activists know where could get to an M&A, I'm not sure what anyone would do with this piece. Even if you had a whole new board. Even if you had a whole new board, I don't know what you're looking for. Okay. Well, they're looking for gain, and the stock got 22% after hours. That's short. You got it. From home retailers to home builders. KB Home Hire, after its earnings report, Diana Olick's been all over that earnings call, and she joins us now live from D.C. Diana. Brian, a bit of a mixed bag. Revenue and new orders down, but KB continues to grow communities and is now offering smaller floor plans at a lower price. Also, it outperformed in California, which is incredibly tough right now. Already, KB's average selling price is down 5% to $370,900. CEO Jeff Metzger said although the decline in net orders during the, first, uh, the 2018 fourth quarter impacted our first quarter housing revenues, we are encouraged by improving market conditions, which we believe should enable us to generate stronger revenues in the 2019 second half. Now, on the analyst call, he said, as we look at the health of the U.S. economy, it remains on solid footing. He also pointed to improved affordability. Home prices have moderated recently, and interest rates have eased back down, improving affordability. Last week's announcement from the Federal Reserve signaling the likelihood of no further rate increases this year should also help to sustain the favorable macro environment. Now, KB's first quarter was December to February. Rates last peaked in November with the 30-year fix just over 5% and then began falling in December. We did see a big run-up in the stock at the start of this year. Part of that is mortgage rates dropped, and part of it is what's known as the hope trade. That's when investors rush into the home builder stocks ahead of the spring season in the hopes that strong sales will boost the stock even more. Brian? All right, Diana. Look, Diana, thank you very much. Well, even before reporting today, KB Home stock had surged along with a lot of the other home builders. The group has really been on a tear this year, guys. Lenar and KB Home among the best performing names, along with DR Horton, Lowe's, and Toll Brothers, also up double digits. So, is this more good news ahead for home builders, Steve, or simply a reflection? of bond yields and thus mortgage rates likely continuing to fall. There were headwinds. There were lumber, the lumber cost. There was a home affordability. Those were the headwinds. And you had, you had uh, trying to look for workers. So there was a host of, of, of reasons why the home builder segment didn't work. And now I'm starting to think that this is over with. Obviously, you see year-to-date performance. I'm still long, Lennar. Lumber prices are still in dramatically from where they were peaking out, where they said it was going to crimp uh, gains or, or, or crimp um, profits. 
I think that you're starting to see a switch, and there's still tremendous opportunities in the builders. It's interesting. This might be kind of a catch-up trade. Look at what's going on with the REITs. IYR is the ETF and the REITs. They have been on fire. A lot of it has to do with the fact that they pay a 3% dividend yield, but it's also real estate, right? So you can bucket into that same thing. If you get a breakout and people start to get excited about the fact that KB is telling you things are looking a little bit better, it's probably not a bad buy here. But what I don't understand, though, is is how you guys can be bullish on housing in a world where I think you guys are overall quite negative on the market, quite negative on the economy. And and, and ultimately, it gets to a place here where the housing market's not going to do well in an environment where 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 GDP is slowing, where people could possibly be losing jobs, where peak labor. Um, Yeah, rates are going to go lower. But the I I hear what you're saying, but the builders didn't do well when things were even better. I think that it's just an unconsensus trade where I I don't I don't believe that the consumer in America is bad. And 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 we still have a housing shortage. And in many places, there is just no if there, if there, homes available. There's no affordability, though, Brian. And and there's there's well, it's that's getting better. The average price. I don't know if Dan hit the average price of a KB home home fell five percent over the quarter, probably because they're shrinking their footprint or because demand's falling. I mean, why do you cut prices? I mean, if you have household demand, formation, I, I, a lot of that is a reflection of the geographic is movement. actually increasing for the well, first time. It's also time ge- if you're buying, building in L.A. versus you know maybe Birmingham, Alabama, prices fall naturally due to geographic shift. I actually uh, was in Birmingham, Alabama once, but that's by the UPS. No, and no. <laughs> I think that's the, where your Lyft passenger yes. wants to go. Think this great is the fair. quarter. This is the quarter where you get the rally. Good for Steve. has been on back of these. I think next quarter's a quarter is going to be tremendous headwinds because, to Tim's point, I don't think the economy is in that great a shape, and yep. I think it'll manifest itself next quarter. All right, good home. call there, KB Home One to watch tomorrow. Okay, coming up, are you looking for fast money? Well, of course you're watching it, but check out these fast food stocks heating up all year. Are the gains already in the bag, or are we just getting cooking? We'll discuss it oh next. My. As always, live from the NASDAQ market site, stick around. <laughs> All right, another big story today. Welcome back, by the way. McDonald's doubling down on technology. Bits, not burgers, with a $300 million buyout of startup Dynamic Yield. It is McDonald's largest deal in 20 years. Now, who is Dynamic Yield? They specialize in personalization technology, which McDonald's hopes will help modernize its drive-through services by having digital menus that will adjust to each location on store traffic, weather, and other factors, also suggesting maybe meals that you would like. That move giving McDonald's a boost today, but it is trailing the other fast food giants this year, only up 5%. Chipotle up 60%, on track for its best quarter ever. Starbucks up 13% and trading at an all-time high. So... Is this McDonald's tech bet enough, Guy Adami, to heat up the stock? Well, I don't know. In terms of valuation, it might be getting a little ahead of itself. We've all liked to think McDonald's across the board, but now you're getting into levels where at 22 and a half, 23 times forward earnings, I think, is it worth the price of the ticket? I would say you're bumping up against levels, and we have a great chart here. You go back to the pre-December high. That's the left side of your M. Then you have oh, the rollover. what's going on there. Then watch, and you get the middle, and now right. you're going to make the third part of the M. I suggest... But it's a terrible-looking M, by the way. I don't know if you were, were not drawing well. He doesn't well have great penmanship. Look, look at the... Um, see, uh, whatever. Not great they penmanship. They should have spread it I, out I, a little I don't, bit. The no. McDonald's formation is bearish. 
BK. It's like that hoof it's, and mouth disease. You that's bearish too? Yeah. Well, I, I see the golden arcs, not the golden arches on this one. But I do think you can actually get a breakout on this. We've seen with other fast food retailers when they embrace technology, and not that McDonald's hasn't done Domino's. it to this point. Domino's. Domino's like originally great example. was the one. Everybody who's done that has seen an increase in sales. This could be the thing that's It's a little bit different. Out. I mean, that chart is one to make you grimace. I will admit that. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. That's fantastic. Oh, sold it. Good for you. Oh, well done. Yeah, obviously. Good for well, you. Okay. But, but here's the thing. What they're hoping for, this is not menu innovation. This is literally artificial intelligence. You drive up. It's like Netflix. If you like, like this, maybe you'll like that. Here's the bottom line. Is it going to drive sales? Are people going to order more and different things well, because well, the menu is different? Yeah, I think so. But restaurants have been doing this for a long time. Mrs. Fields used to put out cookies in the mall when their sales were down, and you'd come sniff it and you'd go over. I've been caught a couple times over at Mrs. Ah, Fields but, once or twice, but it works. Now they're using Mr. technology. Fields now? <laughs> <laughs> Look, the, 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 bottom, the bottom line here. Um, uh, anyway. But, we have time here. The bottom line. No, Mayor Mayor just hold on. Is, Rebel is Rouser's glory. Oh, They've got to do better than that, but their operating margins have actually been improving. The kiosk service, to me, has drawn new customers back. The the you know the whole what do they call the the grass-fed beef guy, whatever it is you eat, um, that's also been important for the name. Playing off. Coming up, the regional <laughs> banks have been getting wrecked. One trader just making a four million dollar bet on more downside. We'll break down the trade. Stick around. I got a big news alert on Apple and Qualcomm. Josh Lipton is in San Francisco with that. Josh. So, Brian, uh, this is uh, more news in the Apple Qualcomm brawl here. Remember, there are two cases before the U.S. International Trade Commission. So when one of them just now, the ITC shot down a patent infringement claim from Qualcomm, saying the patent for this feature is invalid. Uh, that means the ITC terminates the investigation. It also means the agency uh, doesn't have to rule on an import ban of iPhones. That's something Qualcomm wanted. So a victory there for Apple. A uh, decision, though, also comes on the same day as another ITC case, Brian, so this is a separate one where a trade judge there uh, did decide that Apple infringed a different Qualcomm patent. That judge uh, recommended an import ban of iPhones, didn't specify which ones. But remember, again, the full ITC commission has to review that case as well. So no, no done deal on that second case. We'd expect a ruling on June 26. Brian, back to you. Josh, thank you very much. Guy Adami, trade this. I would go to Qualcomm, and you have to say, with their balance sheet and their valuation, if things are starting in the rearview mirror now, maybe it makes sense. Maybe it can catch up to some of these other chip names that have been on fire. Apple obviously sold off today on the back of this. It's probably rallying in the aftermarket now, but we talked about Apple ad infinitum last night. So if you're asking for a trade, if there's any weakness in Qualcomm on the back of this, I think you buy that. All right. Let's now turn our attention to the regional banks. They were higher today after getting crushed over the past month. But one options trader just made a big bet. The sell-off will continue. Let's go now to my co out in San Diego with the details on this. Hey, good to see you, Mike. Hey there, how are you? So KRE, yes, the regional bank ETF saw seven times its average daily put volume. Part of the reason for that, a trader was buying the June 48-42 put spread. They spent about $1.08 for 38500 of those. That's spending about $4 million bucks in premium to make a bearish bet. Bear in mind, the same trader looks to have made a bearish bet last week. They took profits on that. They bet about $4 million bucks last week, took profits of about $5.7 million today. So... They made a good bet last week. We'll see if this one also turns out to be fairly prescient. But they're betting that there's further downside in the regional banks. 
Mike, thank you very much. BK? Yeah, this is the epicenter for the yield curve, right? So, and these particular names, the one thing I would say, as we go lower, you need to be concerned that the Fed's going to come out and say something about ways they might steepen the curve. But for a short-term trade, I don't, I don't mind this at all. All right, for more options action, you can always, of course, check out the full show. Fridays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Your final trades are next. All right, it's time now for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. Yeah, uh, big EFP name. Excuse me, it's easy for me to say. EOG is certainly one of the best in that space, like energy. A lot of conviction there. BK? Well, if oil's going higher, you might want to take a look at the gold miners, GDX. I like that one. Steve Grasso. McDonald's. You, you know, I see what Guy's talking about, about running into resistance here, but I think that at this point, if we break through that resistance, I do see 200, 210 as a price target. Wow. Okay, bullish view there, Guy Dami. Thanks for being yeoman's work. 11 hours, you'll be back on tell 11 hours crazy. from now. You'll be back a on A lot of carries. Worldwide exchange. I encourage everybody to tune in. I know I do religiously. Well, we now have a phone segment with Guy Dami tomorrow at 5.01 a.m. Oh, wow. Are you We're just putting it in the program right now. <laughs> Eli Lilly, if you notice, this stock continues to make all-time highs. Healthcare on fire, Brian. All right, good stuff. Glad to be here, guys. Thanks for taking it easy on me. That does it for Fast Money. We'll see you tomorrow night. Mad Money with none other than Jim Cramer begins right now. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.